Welcome to another edition of Newport Beach in the Rearview Mirror. I'm Bill Abdel. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? Yep. It's time for part two of our pop quiz on Newport Beach history, the Origins Edition. Like part one, we're going to explore the earliest days of Newport, a crazy time where, for example, the new port was only discovered because a sea captain, deeply in debt, decided to brave the lethal entrance to Newport Bay instead of taking his boat to the port of Wilmington, now Los Angeles, where the cargo and or boat would have been seized for unpaid bills. If you don't know the story, you didn't take part one of the quiz, so if you want to go back and listen, you can learn all about it. Okay, you know the drill. There were six multiple-choice questions, and the answers will include a lot of forgotten history as context. Okay, here's some quick background for question number one. Newport Landing, on the site of what's now the Lower Castaways at Dover Drive and West Coast Highway, was Newport's Plymouth Rock. It was, quote-unquote, discovered in 1870, and for nearly two decades, it thrived as a bustling port serving local farmers, ranchers, and merchants. It was basically served by just one boat, a flat-bottom steamer christened Newport, custom-designed in San Francisco for the shallow waters of Newport Bay. Its route was simple. Newport to San Francisco and back a round-trip journey that took two weeks and allowed the boat to enter Newport Bay on the two highest tides of the month. And this is kind of fun. To give you an idea of what was exported from Newport, here's one typical bill of lading. 416 sacks of beans. I'm guessing lima beans here. It was a common crop, and now it's Costa Mesa. 100 tons of asphalt. 23 sacks of mustard seed. 15 cases of eggs, 18 sacks of pears, 3 cases of beeswax, 3 sacks of peaches, and 80 hogs. The boat also took passengers as well, so, so it must have been quite an unpleasant, unpleasant ride, to tell you the truth. The bottom line was Newport Landing was a big commercial success. But in 1888, it became a ghost town, or really a ghost village, almost overnight. So question number one, why did the Bayside port die after 18 years? A, a long drought caused it to go bankrupt. B, the freshwater spring there dried up. C, an earthquake leveled the buildings and sunk the wharf. D, the harbor entrance proved too dangerous for boats. The answer is D, the harbor entrance was a flat-out death trap. Over the years, boats, cargo, and men had been lost to the shifting sandbars and the huge waves that formed at the harbor entrance. And by all accounts, that loss of life haunted the Newport Landing's operators, James and Robert McFadden, but not quite enough to shutter the profitable port. Instead, They lobbied the federal government in 1887 to improve the harbor by building rock jetties at the entrance and dredging the bay. While awaiting the Fed's decision, another tragedy occurred. This one hit the McFaddens 
and the rest of the Newport Landing community incredibly hard. Here's why. The brothers had a favorite employee named Tom Rule. He was a Civil War veteran. He was described as, quote, a splendid specimen of physical manhood and extraordinary strength, unquote. He was so loyal to the McFaddens that he once beat a rival almost to death who was publicly disparaging James McFadden. According to one account, the victim was, quote, one mass of blood and his head and face were swollen and terribly bruised, unquote. Another time, Tom Rule wanted to bring a six-shooter to settle another dispute concerning the McFadden's operations. I'm guessing he won Employee of the Year many times. In addition to being the enforcer, Tom had many other roles at the port, including harbor pilot. He would mark the entrance to the bay twice a month so the steamship Newport could successfully navigate the sandbars. But on July 7, 1887, a huge swell generated by a hurricane hit Newport Beach. Despite the conditions, if you've ever been to the wedge on a summer swell, you can kind of get a sense of how huge those waves were. The seemingly indestructible Tom Rule set out to mark the entrance in nothing but a rowboat. And that turned over in the high surf and he drowned. This death of a beloved friend and colleague was the last straw for the McFaddens. They were determined to find an alternative port to Newport Landing, though they still held out a sliver of hope that the federal government could make Newport Bay safe. But shortly after Tom Rule's death, federal officials informed the McFaddens that it would take $1.5 million, which is about $44 million in today's dollars, to make Newport Bay safe for commercial shipping. But they determined that price tag was too high, especially with a far better alternative just up the coast at the port of Wilmington. So with the death of Tom Rule and the decision by the federal government to pass on improving the harbor, the McFaddens decided to build a wharf on the ocean side of the Balboa Peninsula at what's now the Newport Pier. So, after operating for nearly two decades, the not-so-new port was abandoned and the new Oceanside Wharf became the epicenter of Newport. Now, for question number two. This one is a little bit out of chronological order for this quiz, but I just stumbled upon it and it was too good to pass up. So here it goes. The first attempt to widen and deepen the entrance to Newport Bay was done by A. Using waterproof dynamite sunk by bricks B. By 25 teams of horses that plowed the channel at low tide C. By 50 men with shovels who labored for a month D by a barge outfitted with a pulley system and huge bucket to scoop up the mud and sand. As nuts as it sounds, the answer is B, 25 teams of horses. Far into the 19th century, the Baboa Peninsula was not fully formed, and it was broken up in several places where the ocean had created a channel between the sea and the bay. Every one of those channels was either very dangerous or just flat out unnavigable for commercial boats. The most promising one, and the one that had been used for six years, 
after the discovery of Newport Bay, was located where today's harbor entrance is. So in 1876, the McFaddens enlisted the services of the farmers in what's now Costa Mesa. They brought 25 teams of horses to the small channel adjacent to the beach at Corona del Mar, which back in the day was called Rocky Point. And for nearly three days at low tide, they dredged the entrance by basically plowing it and allowing the force of the outgoing tide to scour the bottom, creating a deeper channel. So ambitious and kind of ingenious when you think about it. This made the mouth of the bay slightly less dangerous, but it would be another 50 years before that harbor entrance would be permanently fixed. And in the meantime, boats and men, women, and children would be lost. Time for question number three. How was the site for the McFadden Wharf selected? A. It was near a fresh water spring. B. A submarine trench just offshore allowed for a deep water port. C. The sand spit that was the peninsula at that time was just too unstable past that point. D. It was conveniently near the newly built McFadden Brothers homes. The answer is B. A submarine channel existed just offshore, creating still in deep waters that made it a great place for a port. Now, how did the McFaddens find this spot? The brothers got help from an unlikely source, the federal government. In fact, the same federal official who rejected the brothers' request to improve Newport Bay had developed a friendship with them and was sensitive to their plight. So he directed what he called, quote, a special examination of the physical hydrography west of the Newport Bay entrance, which means he instructed his team to look for a submarine canyon or valley that would be a good place to put a wharf. And they found it in the location that is right now the Newport Beach Pier. There, the water was 40 feet deep, just about 250 yards offshore, making it the perfect location to load and unload the largest commercial vessels of the era. And you still see evidence of that underwater canyon today. The waves at the surf spot near the pier, called Blackies, never gets too big and the water a little farther out is always relatively calm. The, the waves never break out there because that deep trench still exists. All this leads us to question number four. How did that submarine trench form? How did it come about? A, it was carved out by the Santa Ana River over millions of years. B, a large earthquake estimated to be at least 8.0 on the Richter scale, split the ocean bottom in two. C, a volcano, which was thought to erupt 10,000 years ago, created the trench. Or D, no one really knows. If you pick C, that crazy volcano answer, I, I may have to flunk you. It's just there because I was getting desperate for some fake answers, and that's all I could come up with. The right answer is A, the Santa Ana River. That once mighty river carved out the bluffs of the Back Bay 
again, over millions of years. And it also created a channel on the bottom of the ocean as it ran into the sea. Remember, this was before there was a peninsula or bay. For the Santa Ana River, it was just a straight shot into the ocean. Question number five. Four years after the completion of the wharf, it was almost totally destroyed by A, an earthquake, B, a fire, C, an explosion, D, a freak storm and high surf, E, a volcano, <laughs> no, forget E. The correct answer is D, the freak storm and high surf. So what happened? Perhaps lulled by the usually placid ocean around the wharf, the McFaddens made a crucial misstep in building the wharf, perhaps to save some time. After all, and get this, the pier's construction began in 1887 and was completed just one year later. That's insanely fast for a project of that size. One shortcut that was taken was driving the pilings into the ocean bottom for only eight feet. And in February 1892, four years after the wharf's completion, a massive winter storm came through and exposed this fatal flaw. Nearly 600 feet of the wharf was washed out. That's, what, two football fields? The pier was then rebuilt with pilings driven 15 feet into the ocean floor, nearly double the depth of the original pilings. Now, one of the features of the wharf was a rail line that ran through Newport and then onto the wharf itself. And that rail line made for easy loading and unloading of cargo. And this is a weird oddity that, I, I don't know, I, I found interesting. When the wharf was washed out, three Santa Fe flat cars were swept into the ocean. One washed up on shore four miles west of the pier. Another one surfaced at 23rd Street, which is basically at the pier. And the ocean gave up the third one 25 years later when it got caught on an old piling of what had been the pier at 35th Street. Uh, I didn't know there was a pier there ever, but apparently there was. The flat car was in such good condition after a quarter century undersea that Santa Fe Railway salvaged it and put it on exhibit to highlight the sturdiness of its cars. Okay, time for question number six. It's the final question, and I think my favorite. Here's a little needed context. When the McFadden Wharf was completed, most of the Newport Landing buildings, which included a two-story home, warehouses, and shanties, were moved from Newport Landing to near the base of the McFadden Wharf, an area which would eventually become the city of Newport Beach 18 years later. So, how were those buildings transferred? A, teams of mules pulling flatbed wagons. B, teams of oxen pulling flatbed wagons. C, they were floated across the bay. D, they were rolled on logs as horses pulled the structures. 
The answer is C. They were floated across the bay. At first glance, that seems absolutely bananas. But when you think about it, the McFaddens really didn't have any other options. Most of the structures were large, so it would be difficult to load them on any kind of wagon. And if they can somehow manage to do that, they would need to ford the Santa Ana River, which then ran between the mainland and the peninsula and wouldn't have a bridge across it for another year. So rafts were made with wooden barrels used as floating devices, and McFadden employees used poles to propel them across the bay to the peninsula. And that was a distance of about a half mile. Not bad thinking, right? Now it's time to answer two more questions that we ask in most of our episodes. Number one. Could the story of Newport Beach's origins be turned into a six-part Netflix series? A hundred percent. Look, you have danger, intrigue, exploration, politics, innovation, tragedy, and characters from around the world. And all of this mostly taking place in a small settlement on a bay and then for episodes five and six, probably, on the oceanfront. It's a, it's a great setting, great characters, great situations, plenty of drama. Sign me up. So, who should be cast in the series that I'd simply call Newport? For James and Robert McFadden, I, I'd bring Luke and Owen Wilson on board. I think they'd be perfect for the parts. For Captain Dunnells, the old sea dog who piloted the first boat into Newport Bay, I'd cast Kevin Costner or, better yet, Sam Elliott, the Western actor with that great, gravelly, deep voice. For Tom Rule, Christopher Pratt, best known, at least to me, as Andy from Parks and Rec. Okay, here's the last thing to ponder. What would have happened to Newport Beach if Captain Dunnells had never turned the steamer Vaquero into Newport Bay in 1870? And this is a tough one. On one hand, there was a growing demand for a port from the farmers working the incredibly fertile soil on the lands surrounding Newport Bay. So there were economic incentives to find a close-by port to serve those folks. But on the other hand, Newport Bay was basically unsuitable for a port. The McFadden brothers, just through their ingenuity, made it work, but at a very high price tag, including, as we've said several times, many lost lives. If I had to guess, I'd say given Newport's unique geography, which includes a harbor, islands, miles of beaches, and bluffs all along the coast along with the amazing weather, it was inevitable that Newport Beach would turn into a resort town. I just don't think it would have its roots in commercial shipping, if not for an extraordinary set of circumstances. That wraps up our two-part quiz on Newport Beach's origins. I appreciate you getting into this podcast time machine with me and traveling back to the 1870s and 80s to explore how Newport came to be. We'll see you next time.